Amen. Good morning. I love this time of year. I'm one of those guys. I'm a little nerdy about it. I love it. I love overdoing it. I have loved decorating too much, making my family do things they don't want to do. I love it all. I love it all. I'm a little Clark, Clark Griswold like that. And it's busy, but it's, it's like a good kind of busy. It's beautiful. And we put up trees and pretend it's cold out and all that. So I'm a little fired up today. I'm a little fired up. Um, uh, I got a couple things I want to tell you about now instead of at the action points at the end just because of the way the service ends. So just please make note of these and remember them. Uh, Santa's wish list. You guys have been unbelievable. We have uh, over, over like 160 of the kids that we um, had sponsored for Christmas gifts have been adopted by families in this church and community groups. Uh, meaning, yeah, it's great. Um, these guys, what that means is that these guys have taken these families with their kids, their lists of gifts. They have purchased all their gifts at their own expense, wrapped them, and they're going to be delivering them to these families. And that is so much fun to see these kids' faces and, and just have that experience. My girls love doing that. They ask to do it uh, every year. And um, so we're having a big wrapping party in the... Uh, Jim, across the street, right after church, there's pizza. A bunch of you signed up to do that. We're going to need you because uh, what we do is we adopt out all the kids we can, and then we have some kids left over. So we buy up the gifts with donations that have been given. And uh, then we meet over there and we wrap them. We put some bikes together. We set them up in bags for the people who have volunteered to deliver this week to deliver those. And so we can use you if you want to come over there and help us right after the service. That would be awesome. And if you can sign up to help deliver this week, again, it's, it's not only helpful, but it's a great thing to do with your kids uh, this time of year. Great message to send them. So that's Santa's wish list. Uh, be aware, our 20s and 30s uh, between services, so right before this one, they sponsor uh, a fancy coffee hour over here behind the uh, playground in the river house. They do pour overs. And if you're a coffee connoisseur, then just go out there. They do it the, the way they're supposed to. And it's awesome. And you can get to know some people. We have a great cup of coffee here too. And some bagels right after the service. You're always welcome to join us. But if you're new to us and you would like to come a little early, you can go out there and you can meet those guys. Um, our Christmas Eve services are at 5 and 7, as always. I want to ask you to help us out, especially you regulars. Uh, two things. Number one, be really thoughtful and prayerful about a person or a family or someone who uh, would really be blessed by the peace of that Christmas Eve service. It's so beautiful. And uh, we really make an effort to really design it so that you can bring your friends. So let's fill this place up with new folks and really introduce them to the love and peace of Christ. Uh, it also helps us on that night. If you don't have kids like four and under, that's what we have childcare for. If you have older kids or you don't have kids, if you can come to the seven o'clock, that helps us a ton to balance out the service. And it also helps the folks with little bitty ones to get home earlier and all that sort of thing. So that their kids have even longer to wait up all night for the Christmas presents. Um, so that's all that's going on right after the, the service. There's always some folks up here to pray for you. So uh, when we're done, if you need prayer or just want to talk to somebody, come on up. But um, so we're going to continue in this 21 questions series with this softball of a question. Uh, why is Christianity so exclusive? And uh, this is so easy. It's so easy to answer. I didn't even bother studying this week. I didn't even bother preparing because I think any number of people in this room could do it. Like Mike Morant, come on up, Mike. You got it. You got it? Matt Burrell, Matt Burrell. Christian, your name is Christian for heaven's sake. Why is Christianity so exclusive? It is. It's fair. It's a fair question. And you know, it really came into sharp, sharp relief this week in a very visceral, practical way. I don't know if you know this. It's just come out in the news in the last few days. In China, there is a pastor named Yang Wei and his wife, I believe, please forgive me if I'm pronouncing these wrong and correct me after, but I believe it's Yang Wei and Jiang Rong, his wife, 
uh, pastors in China, uh, they are being detained right now, along with a hundred members of their congregation. They've been gathering up their elders. They first arrested him, and then they arrested her, and then they began gathering up elders from the church until there's only one elder left, and he has said, I'm now the one who will take it when I'm arrested. This wasn't 50 years ago. This is happening right now. They're in an undisclosed location as we speak. It's new to me. I don't even know these folks very well. I went online. I tried to watch messages of his and read things that he had written. He anticipated that this would happen. So in October, he wrote an open letter to be distributed to the media when he was arrested. And it was just distributed. I read it in the New York Times. And then she wrote a letter to him before she was arrested. We're going to send you those this week and you need to read them. Let me tell you what they were arrested for. Um, subversion against the government. And as far as I can tell, here was their crime. It's articulated in his letter and in the messages that I read. Their crime was preaching Christianity, preaching the gospel, expressing their views, their exclusive views. And they said, these views apply to everyone, even the prime minister of China. And they said them forcefully, but I would say lovingly, and yet they were detained for subversion against the government. And so I'm not even here to talk about their beliefs right now. I'm here to talk about this guy idea of exclusivity because this pastor quoted the verse, one of the verses we're talking about today. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is real. And what we have is two exclusive points of view. Two points of view in which people disagree with each other and there is no margin between them. Somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. Somebody has to stay free and somebody has to go to jail. The, the beliefs mean things. So this is an important thing for us to consider. So I turned 50 this year. And uh, now no wooing. You know, it's almost more of a condition than a birthday. It's like you got 50. You caught fi I caught 50. And because stuff just starts happening to you, you know, things happen to your body and just, you know, and so I made this horrible, horrible mistake. Um, I, I went to WebMD. And here's what I Googled. I Googled health concerns after 50. Big mistake. Big mistake. I get this first article I get is titled, uh, ready? Sudden health problems at 50. Sudden. And here's the subtitle. One minute, you're fine. <laughs> I'm fine in this minute. What's going to happen in the next minute? So then what do I do? I keep going. And you know how it is on WebMD. By page three, you've got something seriously wrong with you. You're going to die by page three of WebMD. You will die. And if you, uh, if you keep reading, it's more like a bell graph, right? It, you're going to die. And then you keep reading on about page seven. It's probably gas. And <laughs> so you feel better, but you keep looking. You keep searching because you're getting older, man. You're facing that moment of truth. And here's what you don't want. You don't want to know why you probably don't have a problem. You don't want your truth. You want the truth. 
Because it's a matter of life and death. So that bears the question for us. Shouldn't life and death, eternal life and eternal death, be a matter of life and death? Shouldn't life and death be a matter of life and death? Shouldn't I be looking for the truth and not just my truth? If I search for my truth instead of the truth, I might and most likely will miss the cancer. I'll define things in my own reality. I'll hide from my symptoms. I'll ignore the bad and I'll look for the good. You know, it actually takes humility and not pride to admit that I can, can't define my own reality. It takes a great deal of humility to admit that there is a truth bigger than me that is true, not just for me, but for everyone. The inverse of that is that it takes a lot of pride and not humility to believe that I, one of 7.7 billion people on this earth alive today, can pick and choose my favorite beliefs from the all-you-can-think buffet of human ideas and experiences so that I can have my own reality in my own way. It takes a great deal of pride and self-focus to not realize that my beliefs affect everybody's beliefs around me. And that somebody's got to give. I have the right to believe what I believe. I do not have the right to be right. I can't make my own reality. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. There's a movie about this, The Matrix. So I asked our young staff, hey, listen, is The Matrix still iconic enough that I could use it as a reference? And they went, what? Um, <laughs> like, I don't think any of them had seen it. One had maybe heard of it. Uh, you know, and like, I don't know, you know, we're watching The Flintstones or something. See, you don't even know what The Flintstones are. It's, it's a whole other, it's, it's 50, I'm telling you. So the Matrix uh, was a digital fantasy world created by machines who had taken over the world. Uh, and so they created this digital fantasy world so that they could take all humankind, put them to sleep, and use them as a source of energy. So as far as you knew, you were living life. You were living in reality. In the Matrix, everyone lived in a dream of a reality that did not exist, not knowing that they were, in fact, slaves. Now, some of these people were able to break out of the metrics. Uh, matrix into the real world and they could infiltrate the matrix digitally and they could evangelize an idea that was a red pill and a blue pill you could take the blue pill and you could stay in the matrix and be perfectly happy and you'd be at peace but you'd still be a slave or you could take the red pill and you would see the real world you would break free from the sleep and the fantasy. And you'd see the real world. And here's the deal. In the real world, there was a war going on. In the real world, there was pain and suffering and struggle and love found and love lost. And there was betrayal. But it was real. It was freedom. It was life. To take conflicting ideas and believe that those conflicting ideas about the human condition 
about the existence and nature of God can coexist forever in harmony, though they are in conflict, that is taking the blue pill. To take the red pill, to be truly awakened and set free, is to realize that while all people are equal, all ideas are not. Some are better than others, some are true, and some are not. Truth is by nature exclusive. And choosing a life deceived is deadly. I'm still not even advocating for Christian beliefs yet. I'm talking about the way the mind works, the way the world works, the way the universe works. Ideas are exclusive. If they have any meaning, if they have any teeth, if they have any value, if they move anything, if they change anything, then they're exclusive. And if you love someone, you tell them the truth as you see it. You don't force it on them. But if you love them, you tell them. You don't go, oh, look, I'm pretty sure that guy's got cancer. I, uh, how you feeling? Look, you look great. That's not for him. That's for you. That's not love. You offer the red pill. Understanding that you may be wrong and we may be wrong. We Christians may be incorrect. There's another movie called Awakenings, and it tells a story, true story, of a neurologist in the 1960s. His name was Oliver Sacks. Um, he set out to treat the victims of this horrible virus, an outbreak that they had had in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it was called um, encephalitis lethargica, or sleeping sickness. And it was a disorder uh, that had left uh, adults totally catatonic since they were children. Some of these adults were in their 50s and 60s. And they had literally, for most of their lives, been sitting in a chair, laying in a bed, just staring off into the distance. Their bodies otherwise functioning, but totally vacant and totally gone. And so this researcher said, I can't believe this is all there is. What, what if they're trapped inside those bodies? And there's this powerful scene where he goes to the leading researcher in, in this particular condition. And this is the conversation they have. It's very profound. The doctor says, he's looking at the screen of this man hideously contorted with his mouth stuck open, just looking off in the distance. And he says, what's it like to be them? What are they thinking? And the researcher says, they are not. He says, the virus did not spare their higher, higher faculties. The doctor replies, you know this for a fact? The researcher says, yes. The doctor says, because? And the researcher says, because the alternative would be unthinkable. Do you see what the researcher did there? He altered reality. He ignored facts because to imagine the possibility that these people were actually fully alert and coherent, but trapped in their catatonic bodies was, while possible and ultimately proved true, too horrifying a thought for him to bear. So he took the blue pill so he could sleep at night. Make no mistake, Christianity holds to exclusive beliefs, and so do all religions and all philosophies of substance. The question is not, is it arrogant to believe that something is the ultimate truth or the only way? The question is, is it true or not? That's the valid question. 
So I want to just for a second st- step out of the notes for a second and, and throw out a thought that I've had. Why is it so hard for us to get a hold of this? How, is, how does this moral relativism, this ethical relativism idea that all ideas are equal, how does it emerge in a Western prosperous culture? I'll tell you how I think it emerges. Uh, because I uh, live um, free and healthy and prosperous life. Jokes aside about my age, I'm living in the luxurious margin of youth and of health and of wealth that seems to forestall that moment of truth. And it appears to me so distant that I don't even see it and then I can easily subdue it and put it in the background. That's the only place I can create my own reality and say things like all beliefs are the same and all roads lead to Rome. It's when I live in the margins before I I face the consequences of these beliefs like our friend Wang Yi and his wife and his church are facing right now. I can do that then, but then what happens? You run out of money. You get sick. Your husband cheats, your wife leaves, you fail the test, you fail the class, you don't get the part. You lose your house or your job or your status. Someone you love is taken from you. And all of your theories are put to the test. You face the moment of truth. So what's the Christian answer to this moment of truth? What is it? What's the unifying theory? Well, the first thing it isn't is it's not something discoverable by my mind, by reason. And by the way, that that doesn't mean the alternative is a blind leap of faith. I can have a reasoned faith. But let me tell you what Immanuel Kant, one of the most famous philosophers who have ever lived, said about the insufficiency of reason in his book, Critique of Pure Reason. He said this, human reason is called upon to consider questions which it cannot decline as they are presented by its own nature. In other words, by nature we're reasonable, so we ask questions, but which it cannot answer as they transcend every faculty of the mind. In Eastern philosophy, Taoism, the question is posed. You've heard it before. It's a famous question. Am I a man dreaming I'm a butterfly or am I a butterfly dreaming that I'm a man? Here's the problem. It's a reasonable question, but one that reason itself is utterly insufficient to answer. So the honest philosophers, the ones who have taken the red pill, know that just as there are limits to the physical sciences to understand all of reality, there are limits to the human mind and reason to answer infinite and eternal questions. And so what does God offer us? The infinite God offered to his limited, finite creation He doesn't offer a perfect answer because one does not exist that we can understand. He offers a watertight person. With a mind like yours and mine, he offers Jesus. That's the truth that's offered by Christianity. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Here's the deal. If the word is God, the creator and sustainer of all things, then that reorients everything in my life around that word. I have to deal with that word. I have to deal with Jesus. And he claimed it himself. Here's what you need to know as you sort out these exclusive claims. Jesus claimed it himself. He was asked, what's your name or who are you? And he said, I am. He used the forbidden name in Hebrew 
that the Israelites could not speak. It was the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, one of the founders of their faith, a prophet of their faith. And he said, what shall I tell them your name is? And God said, before Abraham was, I am. Wrapped up in that name was all the infinite qualities and character and nature of God. And Jesus assigned it to himself. That's why they wanted to kill him. Because it was blasphemy. He claimed to forgive sins. He demonstrated the ability to manipulate the physical universe, nature, health, even death. And then in John 14, he said that most brash and audacious of things of all, I, Jesus, am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the exclusive name, uh, uh, that's the exclusive claim of Christianity. Now, I want to point out one piece of context for you that maybe you'd never considered, because remember, the ultimate answer is not uh, a watertight argument. It's a watertight person who's lived as we have lived, but transcended our lives. That's the point of Christianity. That's Jesus. Let me give you some context. You know when he said that? We tend to think that he said it, you know, in the Acropolis, standing next to, you know, Plato and Socrates. And I know they had been dead for 800 years or whatever, but we tend to think that he proclaimed this from on high. No, 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 no. He was at the Last Supper. He was at Passover with his 12 best friends. The ones he had suffered and walked through life with for the past three years, years invested himself in. Never gotten married so he could pour himself into the lives of these men who had given up careers and families and status and security and everything for this man. They come together in joyful celebration at Passover, which they did every year. And then he begins to talk crazy talk. The talk of a madman. In my, ha- in my father's house, there are many rooms. He starts saying all these strange things. And he starts communicating to them something they should have already understood. And that was that for them to be saved, first they needed to realize they needed saving. And second, they needed to realize that he had to leave them. He had to face suffering and death in their place. So that he could bring them home. And so, it was in that context, as he looked into their fearful and confused eyes, that he said, Brothers, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. And then Thomas, the questioner, the doubter, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to Thomas, into his fearful, doubtful, confused eyes, Thomas, It's me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, he says to his brothers. Words of comfort to people he loved, had given his life to, and would give his life for even the next day. That's the exclusive claim of Christianity. 
Jesus said, I am the moment of truth. The Apostle Paul, who wrote about Jesus to churches that he planted after Jesus was here, said this. He said, everything hinges on, on, and, and everything in Christianity hinges on Jesus. He says, if Christ... Uh, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus isn't who he said he was, we took the blue pill. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He's admitting that words mean things, that things are true, things are false, and he might have blown it. But he stands with Jesus because Jesus, he believes, is God's answer to every question. So, there are no half measures with Jesus. He says it's all me or nothing. That's his exclusive claim. But consider that context in which he gave it. The context of love. So I want to say something to the seeker, to the spectator, to the observer who's trying to sort all this out, think it through, to really seek the truth, to authentically consider Christianity. You must deal with Jesus. And I know that we are guilty of laying all kinds of things on top of Jesus. We're, we attach all kinds of bag. You got a, Jesus and this political party. Jesus and this social view. Jesus and, Jesus and, Jesus and. No. God's not going to check in on that. At your moment of truth. He's going to want to know if you knew Jesus. And acted accordingly. And left... Everything else at the altar. You must weigh his words, weigh his claims, weigh his life, process him. Have you done that? Have you really done that? And I say this to everybody. If you fancy yourself open-minded, remember something. Nothing will truly change you that does not at first seem radical. Nothing will truly change you if it does not at first seem radical radical to the christian i say this set your mind on our brother and his wife and his elders and his church in china and remember this if you believe it if you believe it if you believe that jesus is god then here's what happens your need to live a comfortable little blue pill life to meet financial goals, to live in a certain house, to maintain a certain figure or physique, to receive the praise of this world, it will dissipate. It will fade away. And your passion for the adventure with Jesus to bring peace to this world will overwhelm your heart and your mind. You will yearn to rearrange your time. You will yearn to rearrange your talent and your treasure to bring peace and to join, and to join Jesus on the front lines. So Christian, weigh and measure that and see what is the heaviest in your life. We all have exclusive beliefs. We all have our litmus tests, our absolutes. But remember this, whatever you won't give up for the sake of anything else, that's your God. You want to know what your God is? It's whatever you won't give up for anything else. So here's the meaning of Christmas and Christianity, the exclusive claims. It goes like this. Jesus came to bring peace to the world. 
He set aside his infinite power, wisdom, and glory. He came out of the cloud of mystery beyond the fires of judgment, off the mountain of transcendent holiness, and he took the form of a baby. God in your arms. That's all you need to know about him. He became you. And he's the only one who can't be removed from his religion without destroying the whole thing. Christianity says the only one worth believing in like that is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the prime mover. All that is has come from you. The incredible design in the universe reflects your beautiful and creative mind, your omnipotence, your wisdom. So I humble myself before you, Lord, because I, I admit to you, there's no way I have everything right. There's no way that I even understand fully Jesus. So with my brothers and sisters, with these people in this room, we come before you and we ask that you tear down our idols and anything that is not true. Father, we're scared, but give us the red pill. And then give us the courage to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.